John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and then verse 14, as we've already read this morning. Read along in your own Bibles, which I hope you brought with you. If you don't have one, you're all right. There will be on the screen there for you. John chapter 1, reading through verse 4, and then picking up again in verse 14. Hear God's word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Then pick up down in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This sends God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. The grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Very good. Well, um, we're going to begin a Christmas series this morning that is going to be very historical in its nature. Uh, it's a little bit odd. Uh, for us, normally our pattern is to go verse by verse and section by section um, and, and looking at God's word. We're going to do more of a topical series for the next four or five times together. So my goal is not necessarily to explain in thorough detail what John 1, 1 through 4 and verse 14 is saying, but I'm going in a particular direction this morning. How were you taught as a kid about what to fight about? It's always one of the dilemmas for parents, isn't it? When you got the bully at school, particularly your boys, what do you fight over as a kid? What are you supposed to fight about? I think there's particular places in life where it is appropriate to fight, to protect the innocent, to defend those around you, to defend yourself even at times. Most of the time, though, we say, kids, don't fight. Don't get into squabbles. We probably say it. 20, 30 times a day in our households. But there are times when it is appropriate to fight. And one of those times in the history of the church was what has become known as the Protestant Reformation. 500 years ago, this past October, we celebrated or remembered the anniversary of the day that Martin Luther nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door and what has become known as the opening bell of the Reformation. I hope you study the Reformation in history. If you did, it was probably wrong what they said about it. But nonetheless, I hope you studied it some anyways. What we found 500 years ago is there was a need in the church, as there is still a need today, for there to be reform, for there to be change, for God to do a changing work in his church. And that required some brave men, some courageous men and some courageous women to stand up and to fight. And to fight for the truth. Because at that time, 500 years ago, as there is at any time in the life of the church, there were grave errors that were worth fighting about. Now, in the midst of this fight between what uh, became the lines became generally between the Roman Catholic Church and what became known as the Protestant or Reformed Church, there were grave errors in behavior on both sides. 
Much of the political wars that would occur over the next couple hundred years after the Reformation were at least in paper or stated to be religious wars. They were primarily nation-state wars, but so much of it was around it was atrocities that were occurred upon one group or the other around this issue. And even the way they fought, the way they spoke to one another, is not the way that I would want good Christians to speak to one another today or at any time. If you were to read Martin Luther, who is uh, the most well-known name perhaps in the Reformation on the Protestant Reform side, which this church would find its own heritage in, uh, Luther, if you've read much of his writings, well, let's just say Luther wasn't necessarily one to mince words. In fact, Luther had quite the potty mouth, uh, if you were to read some of the things that he has to say. If you like some fun, and if you're a good adult, go Google Martin Luther or Luther Insult Generator, in which all it does is pull up various quotes that Luther said about his theological enemies. What we find is mistakes on both sides, but we did find it was a time and a season that there were things that were worth fighting about. I want to be careful this morning that even though we want to defend and debate with Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, some of you would claim to be such in this room this morning. I believe that there are Roman Catholics who love Jesus, and I believe that there are Roman Catholic churches that are faithful to the Lord. But there are certain things that are worth fighting about. And we want to talk about for the next four or five weeks some things that the Reformation believed were worth fighting about. The Reformation, what it taught and what its thinkers and what its writers emphasized has been summed up in what we want to study for the next five times together. And what has become known as the five solas of the Reformation. That word sola is taken from the Latin phrase sola meaning alone. Alone or only. And there are five solas that were communicated. Five emphases of the Reformation. The first was sola scriptura. The second, in not only particular clear order, but is sola fide, which means by faith alone, sola gratia, through grace alone, sola Christus, in Christ alone, and lastly, soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. The sola that has gotten the greatest amount of attention, at least when I was a kid, and the church that I grew up in, the Protestant church, was the, 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 and rightly so, has got a lot of attention is for the doctrine of sola fide, that we are saved, that we are justified, that we are made right in God's presence by faith alone, not by anything you have done. Martin Luther looked at this doctrine, and he believed that we were liberated through it, that we are liberated not by our works, but by the work of Christ alone. He said this, that, that this doctrine liberated him from perpetual guilt, And in his words, it swung open the gates of heaven to him. But as important as the doctrine of sola fide is, the doctrine that undergirds all the solas is the one we'll look at today. And that is the doctrine of sola scriptura. Behind this, all these truths, these things that we love, that we are saved by grace alone, that we are saved by faith alone, that we are saved in Christ alone, the thing that protects those truths is this fundamental commitment that the authority in our lives is the scriptures and the scriptures alone. Let's be clear here, right here at the beginning, a key definition for you asking the question, what is the doctrine of sola scriptura? Scripture alone. Sola scriptura is the affirmation that the Bible alone is the ultimate authority for life and doctrine. That means only the Bible, 
Because it is God's words is our inerrant, sufficient, and final authority, and no one else. Only the Bible has the power, the sufficient power, to pierce hearts, to convict, and to save us. It is the final and ultimate authority in our lives. That's what the doctrine teaches. This morning, it's a little bit different. Usually, we have kind of a flow that we are working through. This morning, we kind of have three disparate points that all center around this one idea of sola scriptura. But I want to talk about this doctrine and its implications in history, for our lives, and in Christmas. Those are your three points this morning. Sola scriptura in church history. Second, sola scriptura in our lives. And third, sola scriptura and Christmas. First, sola scriptura and church history. Some of you hate church history or just hate history in general. Sandy doesn't. She's a history professor. Dan Williams doesn't. He's a history professor. But the rest of you, this might be a struggle. I'll tell you when to wake up, but I hope you'll do the hard yeoman's work of paying attention a little bit of history this morning. Martin Luther and... uh, 500 years ago, following his challenge to the Roman church with his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door, was met with a number of challenges from the church itself. They were coming to debate him, and at the issue, the core issue at the center of those debates was the issue of authority. Who has the authority to articulate how God has revealed himself? And if I could use the question that was asked by a man named Johannes von Eck, in a prominent debate between Martin Luther and Eck himself. Eck was the Roman Catholic apologist who was debating Martin Luther in short in the city of Leipzig, and he was debating him, and at the beginning of the debate, he framed the debate around this question. Who has final authority about God's revelation? The scripture or church tradition? That's the question. Who has final authority about God's revelation? about God's revealing word about himself. Is it the scriptures alone, or is the scriptures and church tradition? The debate in regards to the authority was whether it was the scriptures and only the scriptures that we were to look through to understand fully and rightly and ultimately about who God was, or was our authority found in the scriptures but also the words of the Pope. By the way, when Eck and other Roman Catholic theologians talk about church tradition, what they mean are the encyclicals, the the creeds by the Pope and other councils that have authority in the church. I'm going to give you very, try to articulate very clearly what the Roman Catholic view is and then what the Reformed Protestant view was at the Reformation. In the Roman view, in the Roman Catholic view, you have two coexistent and co-places of equal places of church authority in divine revelation. And they go together, which is the scripture and church tradition are held in equal authority in the life of the Christian. The Roman view was and is that the scriptures, in fact, receive their authority from the church. I'm going to take this. It is best to actually take, if you're going to debate someone, which I'm debating the Roman Catholic position this morning of sorts, to let them speak for themselves. This is directly from the Roman Catholic Catechism. The church does not derive her certainty about all revealed truths from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. But while I might suggest to you that theologically on paper, 
that in their official statements, the Roman Catholic Church has put them, Scripture and tradition, as equals, that functionally, that they have made the Scriptures subservient to the authority of the church. And again, let me see if I can take direct quotes from various Roman Catholic theologians. For example, Johannes van Eck in his debate with Martin Luther in Leipzig said this, that Scripture receives its authority from the Pope. You can also see the sentiment from the Pope's own spokesperson, his official spokesperson, who was charged with the task of refuting Martin Luther and his 95 theses. It was a man named Sylvester Prius, a Dominican theologian who was appointed by Pope Leo X to particularly directly refute Martin Luther and answer Martin Luther's theses that he posts on the Wittenberg door. And here's what Prius said. He who does not accept the doctrine of the Church of Rome and pontiff, that's the Pope of Rome, as an infallible, as cannot make mistakes, rule of faith from which the Holy Scriptures to draw their strength and authority is a heretic. Did you hear and understand what he said? That if you do not hold the doctrines of the Roman Church and the pontiff, the Pope, as infallible rule of faith, from which the Holy Scriptures, too, draw their strength and authority is a heretic. In other words, in their own words, they would say that the, the Scriptures find their authority, is, their authority is given to them by the church itself. Martin Brecht, who was a German church historian in the latter half of the 20th century and was perhaps considered one of the greatest um, historians of the church, said this, that the Roman church and the Pope, considered, who was considered infallible in his words, uh, is understood to be this, that the authority of the church stood explicitly above that of the scriptures. In fact, even authorizing the truth of the scriptures themselves. That's the Roman Catholic view. Second, the debating view, which is the reformers or reformed Protestant view. What they are trying to reform, what they are wanting to correct in the Roman church. They said this, you might guess the reformers view, and I believe that's the correct view which is this, the scripture and the scriptures alone is the only infallible revealed voice from God that speaks authoritatively over faith, beliefs, and the life of Christians. All other statements by the church, by popes, by preachers are subservient to the scriptures. In other words, the standard that they must live up to, the standard that I must live up to when I come up to you and articulate what I, and and preach and teach and say that this is truth, that the standard by which truth is measured by what I say is truth, that what I say say is truth has to be measured by what the scriptures say. I, I serve the scriptures. The scriptures don't serve me. This means that all statements by councils and by popes, all creedal statements are subservient to the scriptures and the scriptures alone. Luther's approach in articulating and arguing against the Roman Catholic Church of his day was to say this, how can the Pope be the ultimate authority since the Pope is fallible? In other words, how can the Pope have authority over the scriptures when he makes mistakes? The Pope can make mistakes. The Pope can be wrong. Only the word of God can be without error. And therefore, because only the scriptures are infallible, then only they can be the final and ultimate authority in the life of the Christian. You following him? 
Perhaps the clearest and most risky articulation of Sola Scriptura in the Reformation was done by Martin Luther himself on April 17, 1521, at essentially what is his trial before the Roman Catholic Church, what is in the city of Worms. And he says this, when he was called to recant his teachings about the church authority, he said this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the Pope or in the councils alone. He's not saying there's not any value in those things. He's just saying, I'm not trusting in those alone, since it is well known that they often err and contradict themselves. I am bound to the scriptures. I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. And here he famously says, here I stand, may God help me. He may have not said, here I stand. Someone else may have added that for Flourish later on, but it sounds good. But it doesn't take from the the core of what he's trying to say. That I answer to the scriptures and the scriptures ultimately and finally. The reformer's view was the scripture receives its authority from God alone because it is God who speaks it. That the church does not give the scriptures their authority. The scriptures are, in their words, they say, are self-authenticating. When God speaks, his words come with their own power, inherently, because who speaks it? God does. And therefore, no, he needs no man, he need no, needs no man to authenticate the truth of what he has to say. Luther's more contemporary and more erudite reformed theological comrade was a man named uh, John Calvin. And Calvin, in his writings, is clear the church does not give scripture its authority, but that scripture comes with its own authority. That it comes bearing its own authority in its own suitcase. And he says this, Just as white and black objects testify to their own color, or sweet and bitter foods to their own taste, so does scripture fully exhibit it, clear evidence of its own truth. It makes its own truth claims about itself. Both Luther and Calvin state that the church receives that which God has already put in place. The church's job is merely to affirm that by the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts saying, that is God's word, we are affirming what God is saying is truth. Martin Luther used this example from the life of Jesus. When Jesus comes to John the Baptist, and then John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, surely this is the Lamb of God. It was not John the Baptist's affirmation of Jesus that made him the Lamb of God, but merely all John was affirming is who Jesus was already in and of himself. Therefore, The reformers said that scripture and scripture alone is the ultimate and final authority for your life. Now, understand this, and this is a corrective, and Roman Catholics get this better than we do. Tradition matters. The words of creeds and councils and wise men who have studied God's word for 20 and 30 and 40 and 50 and 60 years, they matter, and you should listen to them. The Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura does not mean solo scriptura. It means it's the ultimate and final authority, but it doesn't mean it's the, there's no other authority. It doesn't mean that there's nothing else that can speak into your life in some way, shape, or form. For Luther and Calvin, tradition was a tool to assist the believer in understanding God's word. They put it this way, that the scriptures possess magisterial authority, kingly authority, It is the only thing that can say, go right and you go right. Go left and you go left. But besides this, tradition, though, has ministerial authority that is there to help you, to help you understand God's word better, to grow you in your understanding of God's word. So while church tradition and church 
authorities, church ministers, play a ministerial role in your life. You are not called to just have an approach that says, it's me and my Bible and that's it. God has given you thousands and thousands and years upon years of faithful men and women who have gone before us who can help us rightly understand God's words. Sola Scriptura is not a just me and my Bible approach. The creeds matter. We said the most famous one this morning, the Apostles' Creed. The cores of our faith are communicated there. But it was this issue, historically, to come to a close on this point, that separated the Roman church and the Reformed Protestant church. And here's why it separated them. The Reformers did not want to leave, at least at the beginning, did not want to leave the Roman Catholic church. It is indeed a historical travesty. They wanted to reform the church. They wanted to make corrections to the church. But when the persons or persons who you're trying to correct would say, no, we are the highest authority, you cannot question us, it is the end of discussion, isn't it? You cannot have a debate. This is the issue to, to take, go from history to the modern day in something high in scholastic to the ridiculous. We go to the NFL. And one of the great debates of the NFL is this between the players and Roger DeGale, the commissioner of the NFL, is this. And their disciplinary system in the NFL, if someone does something wrong on the field or off the field, the NFL office declares what the punishment is going to be. And then if they try to appeal that punishment, where do they go for the appeal? Right back to the same people who made the judgment about what the discipline is going to be. In other words, when you have that kind of circular authority, you can't have a conversation. And so if the Pope gets to be judge, jury, and prosecutor, you cannot have a conversation anymore. If there is the scriptures, if there is not an objective place of authority who rises above the creeds and the confessions, who rise above the pastors and the popes, then you cannot have a conversation. We have to have a place where God has spoken, and God has spoken fully and finally and authoritatively and ultimately in our lives. This is why the church is ultimately separated. Because we had no ground upon which to debate anymore. All right, that's Sola Scriptura in church history. If you're asleep, go ahead and wake up now. Come back to us. Come hither. You might be asking, that's nice. So what? You're giving me Latin phrases. It's December 3rd. What happened to uh, Emmanuel Emmanuel and ho, ho, ho? We're going to get there. Sola Scriptura in our lives. This is the second thing we want to look at this morning. Here's the direct implication of the doctrine of Sola Scriptura for you. That the Scripture alone is our final and ultimate authority. Your, your final and ultimate authority. This is not just a theological concept to be debated about 500 years ago. It's true today. And therefore, you must submit to it. Let's break that down into two phrases. First, sola scriptura means the word of God, the scriptures, is your ultimate and final authority. At the heart of sola scriptura is the recognition of this, that the fallen human beings have a problem with authority. And you see it from the earliest days. I have four people in my household who have a problem with authority. And they've been showing this to me since the earliest days of their life. Indeed, fallen human beings have since the very beginning of the fall, since the fall himself, have been looking to replace God's authority with some other human or creaturely authority in their life. That was the essence of the first sin in the garden, was the failure to hear God's word and say, that is true and that is good and I will abide by it and I will submit to it. In fact, the place where the devil attacks 
You see, where he attacks Adam and Eve is at the level of the authority of God's word. He distorts and he twists the words of God in Genesis 3. He says, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden, of this tree in the garden? He questions the words of God and who the devil is. The, the battle between good and evil in this world in many ways can be drawn along the lines of what is true and what is false between the word of God and the word of the devil. And what is the devil called? Jesus in John chapter eight, verse 44 says that the devil is the father of lies. And the degree that we rebel against God is when we follow his lies instead of following the truth, the authoritative and ultimate truth of God's words. Derek Kidner, who writes, has written a fabulous commentary on Genesis and in particular has a great quote here from Genesis chapter three in the fall. He said this, the serpent, Satan, smuggles in the assumption that God's word is subject to our judgment. You can view God's word in two different ways. That God's word stands over me and it's my boss or I stand over it and I determine what I'm gonna take. Either we sit over the word or we sit under the word. Which is it for you? That when we come and read God's word, we are to sit in a posture of letting it judge us and be an authority over us. But too often, we are the ones who sit in judgment over it. You know when you do this? You sit in judgment in authority when you, you view yourself as the judgment over the word of God, the authority over the word of God, when you treat God's word as a mere suggestion and not as the full declarative truth. The Bible, the word of God, is not a thousand pages of suggestions. It is not just going, you know what, here's a nice idea. You can take it or leave it. I've mentioned this before when we've talked about God's word, but I think it's a great quote that helps illustrate this well. In the Pirates of the Caribbean, you remember? There's the Pirate's Code. And throughout the movie, people are always looking to defend their honor by saying this is part of the, the Pirate's Code until they don't want to utilize the Pirate's Code because that honor would get in the way of what they want to do. And so what do they say? Johnny Depp says, well, those are merely guidelines. Those are just guidelines, and this is how many of us treat God's word. It's there, it's nice, I'm going to use it until it gets in my way. You show yourself to be one who sits in authority over the word of God when you decide what parts of the Bible that you get to reject and what you get to receive. When we try to get around the authority of God by rejecting it altogether or by merely cutting and pasting, it's what Thomas Jefferson did, right? Me no like you that part. I'm going to cut it out. In fact, Luther actually wanted to do that himself. He wanted to cut out James because he had some things there that he didn't, wasn't so comfortable with. But really, this is what we are called, what we do. We say, well, I don't like that part of the Bible. I don't like the way it pushes on me. I don't like that part, and so I'm just going to ignore that part. But what you have done there is you have undercut your relationship with God. What you said is to God is, God, you can have a relationship with me as long as I dictate the terms. But that's not how relationships work, is it? And that's definitely not how relationships work with the Lord of the universe. No, he enters your life and he says, no, I am God of the universe. I am Yahweh, I am the one above all. I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I will dictate the terms. Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it this way. He says, if it is I who say God, where God will be, I will always find there a false God a God who in some way corresponds to me, who is agreeable to me, and who fits with my nature. In other words, if you're merely gonna reject the parts of the scriptures that are uncomfortable to you, to you or you don't wanna affirm because it's uncomfortable culturally, then you will find yourself with a God of your own making. 
who will be nothing but a shadow of you and your culture. If you truly want to know God, to have a relationship with God, you must accept him as he is and as he reveals himself. And Sola Scriptura is designed to prevent us from looking to any other authorities, in particular us as the authority, in particular probably your emotions about what the word says. But you look fully and finally to God's word. The second part of this though, not only is it your authority, but you must therefore submit to it. You must submit to it. You must submit to it. Standing under the text means that the text is your commanding officer. Valuing the word of God Valuing the word of God does not mean that you buy an enormous Bible with beautiful baby pictures of angels and you put it on your coffee table for all to see. Valuing the word of God does not mean you read, you, you read a verse, although oddly enough, this is what I did at the beginning of this, this sermon. You read a verse and you never deal with God's words. That is not valuing the word of God. You know, the percentage of Americans who have a Bible in their home is 88%. 88% of Americans, the most recent staff that I saw. But you know what percentage of Americans actually read their Bible? 24%. So why is it there? Why is it there? Submitting, and this is important, submitting to the authority of the word of God means that you have to read it with the view of obeying it. Which means when you open God's word in the morning for your personal devotion time, it is not merely that you're looking for sweet jollies. Although God's word is comforting and it, it provides emotional stability and it engages with your feelings. But we have to go to that place, to the word of God by saying, God, I've come to hear your word. And the posture that I'm coming in is you tell me what to do. You speak and I will obey. James 1 verse 22 says this, but be doers of the word, not hearers only. That if you're only hearers of the word, if you come in and you listen to the word of God read week in and week out in church, and yet it's never changing your life, that he says in James 1.22 that you're deceiving yourself. We must do the word. That means you obey the word. In church culture, we have a problem. In particular, I would say in our fundamental, evangelical, conservative churches, where we would hold ourselves to be the bastion of holding on to the authority of the scriptures and the sufficiencies of scriptures. We love our deep Bible studies. We have, we have any number of Bible studies. We love to have our Bible studies. But the problem is this, that we, in all of our studies, if we do not see ourselves being transformed by the word, then something is amiss. Going deeper into some esoteric part of God's word to get some sort of clarity does not necessarily bring about spiritual maturity. But going deeper in the word of God means you move deeper and deeper into costly obedience. That means when you hear God's word that you are finding in five years and 10 years that there's a difference in your life when you look back. That God's word is shaping you because your time and time again, week in and week out, day in and day out, coming and saying, word of God, Speak. So is the word of God, are the scriptures the ultimate and final authority in your life? Do you listen to the word of God with humility and deference and allow the word of God to judge you? Go and read Psalm 139. In fact, I'm actually, if, you have a, if you're in a community group, you're going to have to do this as a part of your group. Reading Psalm 139 and see what the psalmist says there. Search me, O God. Try me. Allow the word of God to do its work. A Christian is someone, if the Holy Spirit has come into your life, is someone who hears the word of God and says, I can no longer live my way. 
I want to live the way God has called me to live. I will put myself under the authority of God's word. All right, that's your second point this morning. Third, third, is we are connecting this whole series and the solas to Christmas. You see, the solas are giving us essentially the cores of our faith, the cores of, of Christianity, that we go to the word of God for authority, we believe in Jesus, that it's by the grace of God alone, that it's, a, it's through the work of Christ alone, it's for the glory of God alone. So I want to connect how Christmas reveals that in each of these sermons the next couple of weeks. But the solar scriptura and Christmas. And here we finally get back to the word of God itself. John 1, verses 1 through 4, says that in the beginning was the word. This is the way John is introducing us to Jesus. If you could replace the word with Jesus, it might be more clear to you. But John, in his philosophical way, is saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Three things that John is communicating to us in John 1 through 3 and then verse 14. The first is this. At Christmas, at Christmas, we see that Jesus is the fullest revealing of the word of God. In Christmas, the word of God, the revelation of God himself, that's what the word of God is. It is this unbelievable thing that there is this God, the creator of the universe, wants to be known by us. And so he reveals who he is. And the fullest expression of that revealing has come in human form, in Jesus himself. The speech of, so, of God is so valuable that he must come himself to be the word lived out in front of us. No pope, no pastor, no preacher or prophet has the revealed authority that Jesus does. Only Jesus reveals who God is in the fullest expression. Only Jesus reveals us to us who the Father is. He is the ultimate and final word about who God is. That's what he came to be. The word conveys to us that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God himself. You know, a person's word is the clearest expression. It makes things clear. And Jesus comes to make things clear about who God is. When it says that Jesus Christ is the word, that's an amazing statement. It says he's the word of God. It's saying that you can't know God except through Jesus. It's only through Jesus that you can know God rightly. You can learn a lot of things about God, but it's only through Jesus. Psalm 19 is this great passage on the word of God, and I thought about going there for this time this morning, but it shows John 1. But Psalm 19, the first six verses, is this great divide. And John 19, verses 1 through 6, shows how we can know God in nature. But then picking up in verse 7 into the rest of the chapter, it talks about how what we ultimately need is God to reveal himself in his word. You can know God in part in nature. Romans 1 talks about this. That we have enough information about God in nature to hang ourselves with but not enough information in nature to be saved by. We need the revealing of the word of God, and particularly the word of God and the person of Jesus Christ to come and reveal who God is. So you want to know who God is? You want to know what God looks like? You want what the character of God looks like? You've got to look to the person and work of Jesus. That brings us to our second thing that John 1 tells us and what Sola Scriptura tells us about Christmas. At Christmas, we see that Jesus is the word of God made flesh. The word of God made flesh. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. What does it mean? The word became flesh. Flesh. When you think flesh, it's actually kind of an icky word, isn't it? Like you think of someone with like a butcher knife smacking some, some steak. And that's kind of what it means. 
It means you can become vulnerable, that you can become cut, that you're squishy, that you're not hard, that you're soft. The divine has become human, has become vulnerable. More than that, the word has become killable. That's what it means to be made flesh. Christmas is so radical because it highlights the fact that only in Christianity of all the religions of the world, we have a God who would come down and take on our suffering whose flesh could be wounded. He came down. It was a great story. I actually got the story from Tim Keller. He talks about in the 1960s, there was a famous story, kind of a sociologist have looked at in which a woman was entering into a, a large apartment complex in which she was in the courtyard and someone began to attack her and to assault her and was stabbing her with a knife. And she's screaming out in pain and crying out for help and people flip on their lights and open their windows and they can see what's going on and no one came to help. But the truth of the gospel is this, and the truth of scripture, and the beautiful truth of the incarnation is this, is that when we were crying out, God heard, like he heard the Israelites in Egypt, he heard and he went down. Why do people not leave their apartments and go help? Because it's risky. Because you can get wounded. It's safe up in the apartment. But he left heaven to take on flesh, to the place to take on life where he could be wounded. Here's the implication for us and God's authority and the authority of scripture. That when God speaks authoritatively, authoritatively in your life, he doesn't do so as some deistic God who has no connection to your suffering and your sorrow. Here's what do teenagers say to parents? You have no idea what my life is like. <laughs> the sorrows and how difficult things are for me. You can't relate to me at all. And what do they say, so what do they do? I don't have to listen to you. Because you can't relate to me. We cannot say that about God. Hebrews 2 says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Therefore he became like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make a propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It means this, when God speaks authoritatively, he knows how difficult it is to keep his word. He knows the temptations that you suffer. He knows the sufferings and the sorrows that you endure in this life because he endured them as well. He was beaten. He was betrayed. You got a bad relationship with some family members? He had a bad relationship with his family. You got some friends who have done you wrong? He had some friends who did him wrong. You've experienced injustice in your life. He experienced unbelievable injustice. You experienced physical pain. He experienced physical pain. So when God speaks, he speaks as one who authoritatively can speak into our sufferings and to our sorrows. Lastly, as we go to the table, I want you to see this. At Christmas, I can't spend long on this for the sake of time, but at Christmas we see that Jesus is the word of God revealing the glory of God. The word of God reveals, the whole point we have is to reveal the glory of God, and Jesus is the fullest revelation of that. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. And what is that glory? What aspects of God's glory have been revealed? Full of grace and truth. 
That Jesus in coming to dwell among us, to come tabernacle with us, to be amongst our mix, has come to reveal the fullness of God's grace and truth. Now these two things have to go together. They cannot be separated. Because the truth of God's word requires God's grace. Jesus in his flesh, the fact that he had to go to a cross and die, speaks the truth about the dilemma in our lives, isn't it? The truth is this, that there is such a gap between us and God, that we have so done God wrong in our sin and rejection of him, of our rejection of his word, that we deserve death. That's what, the, that's what Christmas says. That I, you, you were so lost, I had to enter into your life, enter into this world to die for you because you couldn't die. But we also see that's the truth part, that there's such a gap between us and God. But there's also the grace part. The fullness of God's grace is seen at the cross. And that Jesus in becoming killable and taking on a cross, he shows the fullness of God's grace. That in that gap between us and God, the truth of that gap, the truth that you have rejected him, that you're a son of the devil, and instead, that's, the, that's, a, that's a hard word to say, that in, in dealing with that truth, God said, I'm gonna pour out my grace upon you. I'm gonna do it by making my son flesh. To be killed for you. Now that is grace. See, Christmas is the story about how God's word, God's revealing of himself, that he came to show you that he is the God of grace and he is the God of truth. What are you looking to as your authority? We look to this. Can I, can I say this? We're going to go to the table in just a, here in just a second. That whole stuff, this whole doctrine, and we try to make it clear. And this whole thing about the word of God being your authority in your life, the reason why it should be your authority is Jesus has proven that he is an authority who is worthy to be followed. That when he speaks, he understands. But also he's shown that, listen, I will go to the ends of the earth and I will enter death itself to make you mine. Now that's the word of somebody that I can follow. Can you? Let's pray and let's go to the table. Those of you who are serving communion, if you could just come stand right here to the left side as we gather together to serve communion. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who's revealed yourself. You're a God who's wanted to make yourself, make yourself known to us. And that, Lord, when we rejected your words, that you didn't just leave it at that. That you pursued us into flesh itself. You pursued us into suffering and sorrow itself. You pursued us into death itself. And so gracious Heavenly Father, we come to remember what it took, what it takes for us to come to the presence of a glorious God. The truth is this, is that, Lord, if we were to come into your glory in all of our sin, we, would be, we must be struck dead because of your justice. But, Lord, we come to remember this morning your grace, that there was one who took on flesh to take on the punishment that we deserve, to take on the justice that we deserve. And so, Lord, we set aside the simple bread and the simple cup. There's nothing magical about them. But, Lord, we pray as we remember what you have done for us, that your spirit would confirm to us the beauty of who you are. That, Lord, as we taste the bread and the cup, that, Lord, your grace would go out to us to be such that you would affirm to us that you are a God who's worthy to be heard, worthy to be followed, worthy to be submitted to. 
Remind us of that. Draw us to your presence this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.